All right. Let's get into this. We got a lot to go through today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We've been in this series for a while, and we're looking at what does it mean to be identified as a born-again believer. The term Christian is hard to recognize anymore because it can be anything. It uh, doesn't matter what you believe. doesn't matter where you go. Christian is just kind of, it's kind of like Kleenex anymore, right? Like Kleenex became the term. Now there's all sorts of stuff, right? Kleenex was a brand name. It had a very specific brand, and now it's just, if it's a tissue, it's Kleenex. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. Am I ever wrong? Of course not. Stay with me. Yeah, there you go. That's right. You just got a Christmas card, buddy. So, and then in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I've been hammering on these last two verses because we've got to understand something. When we talk about carnal minded, it means not necessarily that you're having unwholesome thoughts that's where we always go but to be carnally minded is that you are not thinking biblically you are not thinking spiritually how you think will affect how you act that is why you hear they talk about people with like depression anxiety stuff like that or people with got these these different phobias that are kind of crazy and and phobia is like a fear of of falling that's not a crazy one right that's a, that's a normal one. That's a healthy one to have. I mean, if you're on like a one or two foot step ladder, don't be afraid. All right? Because you, you reach a point like, ah, it might hurt, but I'll survive. But if you're, you know, you're on an airplane or something like that, that's a whole different thing. But you get these other ones where they've got these phobias where if I go into this small room, the walls are going to close in on me. And yet it's never happened. But they so believe it that they can't bring themselves to go in there. It's this phobia, this fear. To be carnally minded is what? Not good. So if you are thinking outside of Scripture, if your belief system and your words and the way that you act are contrary to Scripture, then you are just flat out wrong. That's just, there's no other nice way to put it. I don't want to sugarcoat nothing. You are wrong. Your behavior is wrong. And if you are doing something and you're not asking, well, what does God have to say on this subject? Again, you are wrong. Now, I'm coming to a point with all of this, and I'll show you here in a minute. But I'm going to keep moving here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you in meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I'm a present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. You know, he's dealing with something here. He's dealing with a group of people here. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. So there are two ways to walk. A, in the flesh. Two, in the spirit. You can think carnally you can think spiritually you can walk carnally you can walk spiritually you can talk carnally or you can talk spiritually the difference is not the morality aspect the difference is what is the source of your belief system we always think carnal we always think moral whether we want to or not we think carnal as in you are giving in to the desires of the flesh. And that is true. But if you are thinking spiritually, your body will begin to act in such a way. That's what we got to get. You see, we've looked at these questions. Who is God? 
And who am I in relationship with God? And how do I worship God? And who is my enemy? Because we are in spiritual warfare every single day. It is an attack. It is an attack for the believer and it is an attack for the unbeliever. We're all being attacked. The difference is, is that we have the ability and the responsibility to do something about it. A dog will bark because that's what it does. It's a dog. But when it is, if you change a dog into something new, it would no longer act that way. An unbeliever acts carnally. It will obey the desires of the flesh. Because why not? If you don't believe in God, now there is no standard that you have for any moral idea out there. It is your opinion versus somebody else. Therefore, why not fulfill the desires of the flesh? But yet, when you become a believer, we talk about crucifying the flesh. It's all different. And as we began to look at this, we looked at this area of how does the enemy attack? Well, in Ephesians 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And we know, as we've looked through this, and we looked through it in series in the past, is that the enemy comes through one way. He's got one method. That's what the word wiles mean, the methodos. The way in which he attacks is through the mind. Because if he can get you to think carnally, you will begin to act carnally. And I don't mean immoral. Do you realize that you can be off base biblically and not be immoral biblically? Think about that for a minute. That's not where we often go. And the reason we don't go there is because we live in a dirty world. And we're like, well, we're better than they are. That's why we always hear these sayings and these people that have come up, it's like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? It's an argument against God. The proper rebuttal to that is, who's a good person? Because you're not. Neither am I. And them Sooner fans are the worst. Right? I mean, the thing is, is that there is no good because God is the standard of good of which we can't meet up. But we've got a mediator. That has now brought us and made us whole. I don't want to spend a lot of time there. So as I talked about this, I begin in this area is that individuals are the first ones to be attacked. Mentally, they are attacked. They will begin to act wrong. They'll get these ideas individually that they will be impacted in one way or another. But then those individuals will impact a group. And a group will then go into an area. And I'm, I've been breaking these down. And so we're focused, we focus on the individual side. Now we're going to begin to transition a little bit. But I want to keep going here. Ephesians 6 again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What you need to understand is that this verse is telling us how the enemy attacks mankind. Not believers. It's mankind. The believers have the ability to withstand those attacks. If they're doing the right things. And I want to read something to you. Because we talk about carnally minded Versus fleshly minded, carnally minded, I mean versus spiritual minded. And one of the things, I just saw this this morning, and somebody sent this to me, so I'm going to read it to you. But understanding the difference has nothing to do with morality. Let me give you an example of this. The Christian worldview stands in stark contrast to the worldview of our present age. Is that a fair statement? If you're a born-again believer holding to a biblical worldview, then the way in which you see things, it should be different. The way in which you respond to the things of the world should be different. Often it's not, but it should be. So in other words, when there's sickness in the world, we know why. When there's death, we know why. When crazy things are happening all around us, we know why. That's why we study in time stuff, right? 
Because God has laid this out, and we start seeing stuff happen in the Middle East. We're like, hmm, that's a sign, isn't it? We're prepared for it. It's hard to believe, but, you know, we've for years talked about the mark of the beast, and that thing has been so widely known in the world and out of the world and all of this stuff. Like, how would anybody ever fall for that? Well, apparently it's not going to be that tough. Somebody's going to show up with a 666 stamp and be like, hey, get this so you can buy food. Okay, I'll take it. But look at this. The Christian worldview stands in stark contrast to our present age worldview. For example, the world says to affirm yourself, but what does Scripture say? You deny yourself. The world says that you do you. And what does Scripture say? You is a problem. Be like Jesus. The world says it's my body, it's my choice. What does Scripture say? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The world says that you should cancel your enemies and even maybe kill and destroy your enemies but the scriptures say to love your enemies. The world says that there are many ways to God. Christianity in the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God. The world says to stay out of my bedroom. But the scriptures say flee all sexual immorality. The world says to live your truth. Christianity says that there is one truth and it will set you free. You see the difference? That's the difference between being carnally minded and being spiritually minded. The carnal mind is in enmity against God because it cannot in any way please God. There's nothing that you can do on this earth physically to please God outside of receiving Christ. In Ephesians, 10, uh, Ephesians 4, it says that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Then it says to do good works. Not by them, but to do them. Your good works are but filthy rags outside of faith in Christ. You guys get this? I know a lot of you know this stuff, but I mean, it amazes me how we forget. We don't think like this. So when we realize that when these verses are talking about how the enemy attacks is global, the difference is, is that we have a, an ability and responsibility to do something about it. When we think about how the enemy attacks, look at this, Luke chapter 22. I read these last week. Let me read them again. Verse 1, it says, The feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. But Satan then entered Jesus or Judas, not Jesus. Whoa, that would change the story a little. He surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way, he conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Is it mind-blowing to anybody else that a man who watched Jesus be baptized from that point on spent every day with Jesus? He heard the teaching, he saw the miracles. He saw it all. And yet, so easily, he became a puppet of the enemy. Isn't that interesting? We don't think of it like that because we've heard the story so many times that we can almost recite it without even thinking about it. And here it is, it's like, this guy saw everything. It should be no surprise to you that when you hear about believers who become unbelievers, believers who maybe have seen those miracles and seen those things take place, suddenly turn their back on God. Was it a lack of belief? How could it be? He watched it happen. What took place? Did he just wake up one morning? It's like, you know, it'd be pretty cool if Satan just kind of stepped into me and just took over. No, of course not. There were baby steps all along the way. In fact, you can trace it. He's always arguing with Jesus. Always arguing with Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? 
So what cost it? Something got to him. I mean, Peter didn't just sit there like, you idiot. Why would you do this? He said, why does Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and say, far be it from you, Lord, that this should not happen to you. But he turned uh, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Was Peter in a carnal mindset or a spiritual mindset at that point? He was carnal. Why? Because he's going again. He's trying to thwart the plan of God. No, Jesus, we love you. We want to keep you. Because his previously held belief system told him that Jesus was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and reign. And they were going to take over. And that's why they're politicking. Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? That's why they're positioning themselves. Because they were expecting that. Their previously held belief system told them that. Jesus told them the opposite of that multiple times. They refused to listen. So we think of the devil's influence as these big audacious attacks. But really they're not. They're extremely subtle. I wanted to read this to you again. I read this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to show you this book. Because there are things like this that have been written. I told you this thing was written in 1988. And he talks about with this glamour celebrity, this is Rick Renner book, sponsors and supernatural displays the New Age movement is alluring millions into its web of deception. Would we agree with that? It's all around us, folks. We are blind to it because we don't know it and we don't want to take the time to understand what we're seeing. It is in our music. It is in our movies. It's on TV shows. It's all around us. And we're just like, oh, it's no big deal. There Satan conspires to mesmerize the world with supernatural phenomena unrelated to God. This tragedy is far worse than it seems, for the church is not unaffected by these seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And even more serious satanic seduction is taking place within the church. Some, because of a God-given hunger for the supernatural, are intruding into the realms of the spirit without God's assistance. These teachings may sound spiritual, but they contain a hook that could throw the church into an error as damaging as that of the New Age movement. It's time to stand up for the truth of these dangers. That's what he says here. You see, he wrote this in 1988. Now, there were things that 10 years ago I really started to notice that were creeping into the church. Supernatural movements that had no repentance attached to them, which seems contrary to what God would do. And it's like, man, it's like people are chasing signs, wonders, and miracles, but they're not chasing the sign giver, the miracle worker. They're just chasing these things, these feel-good, these goosebumps. I thought maybe it was just me. Maybe I'm the only one noticing this. And then I see this uptick in, 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 in well-known believers that are ministers around the world that were saying the exact same thing. We are being seduced. When I found this book, I thought, man, this must have been rec- recently written. I, found, I mean, I, I pay, it was $7 at some like used book sale or something like that. I don't even remember. And I picked it up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this was written then. I read this also, written by Bob Yandy. He's a pastor still down to, in Tulsa today. He said, Rick Renner, he wrote the forward, uh, preached this at, series at Grace Fellowship, and I'm pleased it's being published in a book. It was one of the most timely messages I have heard and has impacted many of my sermons since. Seducing spirits and doctrine of demons is an accurate insight from Paul's letter to Timothy of the day we are living in. Rick paints a clear picture of Satan at work in the world today in the New Age movement, imitating the role of the church. He also tells of Satan's attack on the church itself to lure believers away from the foundation of the Word of God and chase only after miracles and the supernatural. Rick brings a balanced truth to those who long to hear the Word of truth rightly divided. It is a pleasure to recommend Rick Menner as an able minister and my friend. And the same thing here that he wrote about is stuff that Brother Hagin talked about there towards the end of his life. He said, we've gotten away from the Word of God. We no longer teach in our church. We're always looking for supernatural movements. And when you chase them, you will find them. Just doesn't mean they're of God. 
And everybody's like, well, no, there's no way. I mean, surely I'd have discernment. I can tell you firsthand of not only just what I would call lay people, in other words, you're not a five-fold minister of any way that have been affected by those, but also the five-fold ministers that have gotten sucked into that deception and weave of lies, and it is completely tanked what they have done. They have gone off the rails teaching some very unbiblical things since then. And everybody's like, well, what's the big deal? It's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal because we strive for accuracy. You see, it's subtle how the enemy attacks. We think of these big, audacious things, but they all start with a thought in the beginning, and that thought gets water because it's not taken captive and not dealt with. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says, This six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination, a proud look, a lying tongue, hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plan, feet that are swift and running evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. If we were looking at this list thinking, what are abominations to the Lord? What is our first thing we go to? Homosexuality. He says it's an abomination. He also says one who lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. In other words, it's like what we would put at the top of the list. God said there's a whole bunch of other stuff to tie in there. These are things that we'd call minor. In other words, that if you believe something, if you're stirring up the pot, because you were offended, you were hurt, or whatever. You think you've got it all figured out, and you're sitting in, in a, with a group of people, and you begin to just kind of work around and meddle. Sometimes we call those prayer meetings. These are things that God hates. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it said, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to those, those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil minds. they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parent, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. All of these on this list are pretty minor in our world. You ever have kids? What do kids do? They lie. Right? And there's big lies and there's small lies, right? Did you eat that last cookie? No, I didn't with crumbs coming out of their face. Right? And when they're little enough, that's cute. It's cute. Let's just be honest. It's cute. It's hard to be mad when they're four years old and they're, they're covered in chocolate. And like, I don't know. I don't know where it went. When they're 17, it's a different story. Right? But, I mean, we talk about this and we put them in these orders. But yet, God is talking about these little things and how these little things impact a group of believers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 11 says, but refuse the younger widows, for many they have begun to grow wanton against Christ. They desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which ought, they ought not. So, we don't realize is that when we can be used by the enemy to attack fellow believers, this is what it's talking about, is that we individually can be used... By the enemy, can you believe that? Could you believe that you may be one and have been one at one point or another that the enemy has used to attack either another believer, a group of believers, maybe a church? Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Well, I bet Judas was surprised too. I bet Peter was shocked when Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. But I mean, wouldn't you? You're talking to Jesus, you're minding your business, you're trying to help him out. And yet here we are. Because we do not have a spiritual mind. Now I'm not calling out anybody in this room. I am giving you a church as a whole thing. I want you to understand that. 
But what I'm getting at is that we have got to understand is that we are susceptible to this, just like an unbeliever is. Have you ever wondered how we have gone so far off the rails culturally in America today? I mean, we are confused is about the nicest way a person could put it. How did that happen? Did somebody just wake up one day and be like, I don't know what gender I am. No. And how did that become a movement? It's because it starts with a bunch of little individual ideas. Bad ideas. You see, everybody has a worldview. Not every worldview is good. Not every worldview is true. But everyone has one. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, he says, Now I urge you, brethren. So who's he talking to? Believers. Note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learn, and avoid them. For these who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So what did he say? Note them. means you mark them. They're causing division and offenses and they're not looking to serve our lord is he talking about false prophets coming into the church unbeknownst wolves in sheep's clothing not really you see what happens is an individual will come in and i've seen this happen time and time again again 20 years in ministry i mean you hear about this stuff all over the place i've seen it firsthand and i could tell you some stories my goodness and there were people that were considered spiritual leaders inside of a church that something happened and they began to stir the pot. They were offended. Their feelings got hurt either by the pastor, a leader in the church, or just an individual. And they, because, they caused a, a division there. And what happens is they're not looking for the good of the whole. They're looking for what they want, the outcome that they are after. They're causing division. You see, Inside the church, the enemy will cause division. Because we're moving from the individual size to the group. A person will become, begin to be unsettled. They'll be offended. You begin to take certain things for granted. You know, something along those lines. And then all of a sudden, it begins to fester. Because you quit taking those thoughts captive. You know, it's kind of like the idea that the grass is greener on the other side. I watched a pastor go into the church one time. And that church was in bad shape. And he came in there and he completely turned it around and fixed it. And with about three or four years, what happened? Everybody's grateful for the first year and the second year. But then the third year, they're like, ah, we want this guy to be X, Y, Z, whatever it was. Oh, he's already taught on this. He did this. Oh, he's not this enough. You know, oh, he doesn't visit me enough. You know, whatever. They start finding ways to be offended. And with about year four, they started to run him out. He was no longer good enough ironically, is that same individual was helping other pastors fix multiple churches in the air. He was good enough for that, but wasn't good enough for the individual. I said the same thing with Brother Hagin. Brother Hagin, who many of us would look at as like, man, this was a great man of God, did not pastor very long, A, because he wasn't really called to it, and B, it's because the church was doing everything they could to run him out. He wasn't good enough for them. You see, this happens. This happens with individuals. They don't look like me. They don't sound like me. Therefore, they must not be good. We have to understand that the enemy is deliberately going to individuals and this pot gets stirred and he's trying to break up groups. Now, let me give you an example of this. And I've talked about this before, but I, I, I told you about this guy named Zachary King. And Zachary King was once, he, he, uh, 
He's Catholic now, so you do with that what you want. That's a whole other story. But he was a high wizard in the satanic church. At, at 13 years old, he had gotten into this whole thing. And you know what he liked about it? Is that there was women, there was drugs, it was do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Right? And he liked that. And as he began to grow in this supernatural thing, it was things. He was placing hexes on people and curses on people. Do you guys realize that those are real things? Do you realize that they can have zero impact in your life? You can let them, not let them. You have control. Side story. Anyway, he's growing up in this. And so he had a, they call him a coven, but there was a bunch of people that were under him. And their mission was to break up churches. And here's what they would do. They would plant individuals in these churches. Now, that sounds crazy, right? But usually there were somebody of influence. They were a part of this coven, and they would plant them in this church, and they would begin to go in there. And they didn't just go in there immediately and just start causing problems. They would gain the trust of individuals, and then they would begin to make accusations, not standing up. Let me tell you what this elder did or this pastor did or anything like that. They would begin to just talk to people. It's like, you know, I heard. And there was always either a sexual component financial component or just a straight up leadership component in other words they were they were attacking the character of the individuals many a times it wasn't true and what they knew is that if they could get that church to split and it often worked that one half of that split would never survive the past 18 months and the other one would dwindle to the point that it would be almost non-existent it was a deliberate move on their part but it's interesting the strategy that they employed because the strategy that they employed is the same thing that happens when believers get into that position I mean, when I talk about churches splitting over paint colors, that's not a joke. I've seen people leave a church. They came up with the idea they didn't want chairs. They wanted couches in the church. Everybody would bring in an old couch. You might find it's hard to believe, but not everybody was on board with that idea. And so they got mad and they left. I've seen people leave because of the number of screens that were on, the, on, the, on display. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And I've watched them get in there, and they stir the pot, and they can cause this division, and they begin to break up the church. And it's like, why? Because they're after what they want, their own belly. They're seeking their desires. But it's the same method that he claims to have used. Again, I've not vetted any of his stories. He could be making it all up for all I know. But it's interesting to me. I look for trends. It's the exact same thing. You see, there's a way in which we're supposed to handle the things. There's things that we, we do and there's things that we don't do. And in our culture today, we often don't do a lot of things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Dare any of you have a, having a matter against another go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So what do they just say? There's a dispute amongst believers. So where are they going? They're going to court. Now, I've seen this verse used by somebody who uh, said, Well, this means we never sue. That's not what it says. It says, we never sue a brother in the eyes of the court. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So you're going to the world to tell you how to settle the matter that are going to be settled or solved by the individual who will eventually judge the world. You guys get it? And if the world would be judged by you, and you an unworthy judge of the smallest matters, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are the least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between uh, his brethren? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that uh, before unbelievers. So this is a problem. So in other words, whatever the dispute is, okay, it doesn't say what it is, 
But instead of handling it inside, is there not a wise person in there who can be objective and look at this and say, okay, and, and, and also mature enough uh, the individuals in the dispute to accept that judgment? Verse 7, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not accept, rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, rev, uh, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of the God. So what is he saying? Those are things that you were, but you're no longer like this. But you're going to go back to the people in the world that are, would fall in this list, and you're going to let them solve a dispute? What happened? The enemy got it. Because they're both looking for what they want. We're not looking for peace. We're looking for satisfaction. It's because we are arrogant people. You know how you can tell that you are self-absorbed? There's a lot of ways. One is, you know, if you say, oh, I'm a very humble person. That's one way. But here's a, a quick way you can do this, a little test. You ever had a group photo? And when you're handed that group photo, which I know on, we see everything online, but back in the day... When you got those pictures back, what's the first thing you look for? Yourself, right? You want to make sure your hair looked right, your fly was up, nothing hanging out of your nose, whatever. You look for yourself, and then you go around and look at the, the rest. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, we are self-absorbed. We care about what we want. We care about it so much so that sometimes we will let all the consequences just be out there, and we will do anything we can to get what we want. We're not concerned about the others. We're concerned about us. Does that sound like God? No, it sounds the opposite. See, that's why there's division among the churches. You know what the number one thing is debated among churches today? Music. Because if you're old enough, you prefer hymns. And if you're young enough, there isn't enough distortion you can put on that guitar. So there's this big debate of well, what's, what's right and what's wrong and stuff. Instead of like, how about we just worship God and forget about what the music is? I've told this story before, but there was an 80-some-year-old woman that was at a Hillsong United thing. They had come into their church or something like that, and uh, somebody there that I knew had no, she was just into it, just worshiping, and he was really touched by it because, frankly, their music was not of that generation. They were the old organ generation. You know, they grew up that if you brought in drums, you were probably going to hell. I mean, that's just how it went. And he said something, he's like, man, it's great to see somebody of your age who just loves this music and just worship God freely. And she's like, I hate this music. I hate it. She's like, but look at all these people who are worshiping God. I don't hate that. That's maturity. We don't share that. We're often looking for what we want. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them. To which of them would be the greatest? Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. It's Jesus. Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me uh, receives him who sent me. For he is the least among you. All will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbid him because he does not follow with us. So what does that mean? They were in one way or another a follower of Jesus without physically following Jesus. They didn't like it. You're not in our group. Jesus said to them, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. 
And it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now, the Samaritans were looked down upon. Remember, they were half Jews. And so they didn't like Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't like them. They had their own place of worship. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, what did they say? They didn't receive Messiah. He's right there. John looks at Jesus and said, do you want us to call down fire just like Elijah? That means they believed that they could do it. They're ready to wipe these people out because they didn't think right. They didn't do right. He's ready to just knock them down. In verse 55, he said, he turned and he rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went to another village. You see, Jesus is taking care of them. What spirit was influencing that thought? It wasn't the Holy Spirit, that's for sure. Look at Third John. Now, here's one we don't go to very often. It says, verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved. So who's he talking to? The believers there. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when, uh, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake. Uh, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. And I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, whose love, uh, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So he's dealing specifically with an individual here. And we're watching what he says. He loves to have preeminence among them. Who is them? The other believers. He doesn't receive us being the disciples, what they have to say. He says, I will call to mind his deeds. He's going against us with malicious words. In other words, he's making it up. He's not content with that. He does not receive the brethren. He forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. He's throwing them out. In other words, he's serving himself. So this is not a new thing. This has been an ongoing thing. All of us deal with the temptation. But the thing is, is that many people in those situations feel like they are doing the Lord's work. And that's the thing. That's where deception lies. They feel like they are doing God's work and dealing with these situations, calling people out. We've all seen it. We've all known somebody. I have a friend of mine whom I love dearly, but her mother grew up in a conservative, very conservative assembly of God church. And there is nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. But she feels like it's her mission in life to correct all doctrine. And you know how if your doctrine is wrong, it doesn't line up with hers. And I have seen her cause more division in more churches. But she thinks she's doing the Lord's work. But her belief system is off biblically. So why is she not humble enough to receive that? I don't know. 
Isn't that interesting, though? See, in James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Think about this for a moment. What do we think of? We always think something carnal. But what if it is just simply what we're thinking? You see, that's where it starts. When David saw Bathsheba, he could have killed it right then and there. In fact, if he'd been obedient to the commandments of kings, he'd have never been there in the first place, but he wasn't. And when he saw it, he should have immediately taken that thought captive and turned around. And what did he do? He called her. He said, hey, baby, how you doing? a joke tough crowd you see this is what happens is we get these thoughts and we think that we're right and we assume that we know where we are and we're like nope everybody else is wrong i've got to be right how does an individual impact a group that's how it begins i'm using church as an example this is everywhere i mean if you've ever been any sort of service organization or social organization we're just talking about this stuff uh today how did the boy scouts become woke now there's talks that the Salvation Army has become woke. And what other conservative organizations out there that no longer, that started even with a biblical basis. I mean, do you guys realize that Harvard's mission was to preach the gospel at one point? Now their mission is to thwart the gospel? I mean, it's completely different. How does that happen? Well, somebody gets in there. Remember when we talked about Zach King, how somebody infiltrates? That's what happens. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead as appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So who's he supposed to do that to? The believers. That means we should be convinced. We should be rebuked. We should be exhorted. And that guy needs to be very patient and continue to teach. Do you continue to teach when they don't want to hear it? Yep, your mission is to teach, not, not to make them listen to it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This day was coming, this day is here. It was there then, it is here now. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes uh, preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So in other words, if the angel Moroni appeared to you, you're supposed to ignore that, right? Well, that's a big deal. But what if these thoughts are just very small? Very, very small. Well, if God loves everybody, how would he send somebody to hell? How do we answer that? How do we deal with that biblically? Because that's out there today. Debated, argued. Churches today are now getting rid of the idea that there is an eternal punishment for rejecting God. But why would God force you into his heaven against your will? 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to test everything, right? We know what Acts 17, 11 says. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they took what Paul said, and they searched the Scripture daily to see if what he said was true. 
Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow the destructive ways, because of whom the way of the truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. I mean, guys, I could go through verse after verse after verse, and I'm going to get into more detail, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, just for time sake because I want to look at something I want to show you how this happens we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7 now some of you are already laughing because you know what Matthew chapter 7 is right Matthew chapter 7 is this I'm jumping ahead you find it judge not that you be not judged what does that mean that means we are not to judge anybody or anything for any way why is that because God is our judge and he'll sort them out in the end But that's not your job. It's not your job to judge. This is both for the believer and for the unbeliever. But here is something for you. And I don't know if you know this. There are verses after that. That's not the only one. In fact, let me share with you a little piece of irony. I was teaching. I don't remember where I was, but this happened a while back. And I was turning over to a verse, and I accidentally tore a page out of my Bible. That ever happened to you? Happened to me. You know what passage it is? It's Matthew chapter 7. I'm like, well, isn't that ironic? They've been tearing out of the Bible for years. I just actually got it done. Let's look at this. Because if you read that, it says don't judge. Is it clear that it does say to not do that? It does. But I want to show you something. I want to show you how judgmental Jesus is in this entire statement. Because this has impacted the church. It's also impacted the world. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge... You will be judged. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider the plank in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, let's stop for a moment. What did we see? Supposed not to judge... And instead of looking at what somebody else has, the speck, you got this plank in yours. Did he tell you not to judge there? No. He said, don't judge hypocritically. Because, what does he say? First remove the plank in your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck in somebody else's eye. That means you recognize the speck is there. Thus, you judged it. You guys see that? That's mine. Let's go on. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, that's pretty judgmental. Because he just called somebody a dog and somebody else a swine. These are not cute words. Does that sound judgmental? Sure it does. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Did he not just call these people evil? You're evil and you can give good gifts. How much more do you think the Father can? That's kind of judgmental again. Man, I wish Jesus had read verse 1. That would have helped him out tremendously. So therefore, verse 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. 
for this is the law and the prophets. So what are we seeing? It's not to not judge, it's to not judge hypocritically. In other words, we look inside first, and we clean this up so that we can work on other folks, because that is our job to do. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So what is he talking about? He's obviously talking about salvation. And what did he say? It's a narrow gate. Well, why not make it wide, Jesus? Why not open it up? That's pretty, pretty harsh. I mean, maybe they just are confused. And they, they mean God, as in you, but they call him Allah or Buddha, or Krishna, or any other us that are out there. I mean, why, why narrow it? In other words, you're putting parameters on it, but that doesn't sound right. That sounds judgmental. In other words, if you don't believe the way that Jesus did, then you must be wrong, and that could never possibly happen. You guys see how ludicrous this is? We're not even done yet. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, here we go, pop quiz. In order to look at the fruit of something, what do you have to do? You have to judge whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. Man, Jesus, should have read verse 1. You guys see how idiotic this is? You guys realize you make thousands of judgments every single day? The moment that you pick Cocoa Krispies over Cocoa Pebbles, you've made a judgment that one is better than the other. If you pick toast over bacon, you might be going to hell, but, but that's besides the point. When you go to a restaurant and you choose something off the menu, you have judged the other things are not worthy of the meal that you want to partake of today. Do you realize that if I look and you say, man, that's a lovely haircut. I just judged you. You just happen to like that one. Adam, hair's rocking it today, buddy. He knows it. I mean, that's the thing. This is how ludicrous it is. But this isn't just the church. This is the entire world that has been influenced by this. And what have they done? They've taken the Bible and twisted it to fit a narrative. Does this sound like anything else we've ever seen, maybe heard? Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's almost like, well, Jesus, we were doing all of these things in your name, he's like, I don't even know who you are. So they were acting religiously in the name of Jesus. But they were never made right by him. Verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not, uh, it does them, I will liken him to be a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the flood came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What did he just say? Well, there's a wise man and a foolish man. And the wise man does exactly what Jesus says, and the foolish man does the opposite. Man, that's pretty harsh, Jesus. I mean, have you ever had somebody tell you this, like, they have a hard time accepting parts of the Bible, the moral parts of the Bible, the, you know, premarital sex, it's usually sex, I mean, that's usually the, the keynote there, of some capacity, and they're like, well, I believe the Bible's 95% true, but that other 5% doesn't make sense, it's like, well, why do you get to choose which, which parts are right and which parts are wrong, because the world I come from is either all right, it's all wrong, 
You know, I mean, that's the thing. But yet here we are in a world today, Scripture's been twisted so much so that that verse has impacted the church today. You guys have heard it. I know you have. I have had believers tell me, like, well, we're not supposed to judge. Hello, open your Bible. I'll show you all the judgmental things that are all over the place. I'm super judgmental. I'm judging you all right now. Just get over it. Probably going both ways. Look at the last part, verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his team. That's a big word. They were shocked, that whole judge not thing. They were shocked because he taught as one having authority, not as one just being a scribe. Not somebody who just regurgitated something they read, but somebody who had the source of it in their heart. You see, there's a difference between judgment and condemnation. We don't condemn, but we do judge. That's what's happened, guys, is this is showing you something. This is just one example. We could do several of these. Where something biblical has been twisted both in the church and in the world. Because the world lives in a way they say, don't judge me. Do what thou wilt. You be you. Live your truth. And the church has adopted that same thing. How did that happen? It started up here. The enemy began to attack. They just ran with it long enough until finally somebody gave in. And then that somebody gained a platform. And then a bunch of people heard it. It was like, I like what they say. Because their ears were itching. They began to follow. Do you guys see how this works? Again, we're looking individually. And now we're getting into this group thing. We're going to continue on this a little bit next week. But, but we've got to understand that individually, you can be used by the enemy. And you have been used by the enemy. And it's because we don't take every thought captive. And that's where we've got to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is what guides us. And Lord, we just repent of the things that we need to repent of, Lord. Or maybe we have given a foothold to the enemy and allowed him to come in. And we've allowed him to confuse us and allowed him to dictate our thoughts, Lord. But Lord, we don't have to live like that. And I thank you that you're opening our eyes that we can understand the truth of your spirit. That as we judge these things and take every thought captive, we realize exactly what the source of that is. That we will rise above it and we will embattle it with Scripture and live in our world with Scripture and live with this worldview that has you at the center of it. And we're not just trying to add you to our life. You are our life. And so, Lord, we thank you for that and that opportunity as we continue to grow in this, that you open up doors of opportunities for us each and every day, that we can share the gospel with somebody. And, Lord, as we go into the other room and partake of food, I thank you that you are nourishing us through this, that as we grow together as a family, that we get an opportunity to spend time together. But, Lord, more importantly, we're not just here as consumers. But we are here to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And so, Lord, I thank you for all things that you continue to do in our lives, and we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we'll see you in the other room.